and welcome to the first episode of Cinema Duel, a podcast with myself, John, and my friend Chris. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Excellent. Uh, you might be asking yourself, what kind of a podcast is this? And We're asking the ourselves the same question. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, th- I mean, it's going to be about movies, and it's two white cis guys doing it. So, I mean, that's pretty much the definition of a podcast, I think. So, Chris... I had a thought um, going into today's recording uh, and not to date this uh, exactly uh, for anyone listening to this uh, whenever it comes out, but we're recording this on the eve of American Independence Day. And I thought, what better to show my Canadian pinko commie roots than have us actually talk about a Russian film director? (laughs) How does that uh, how does that sit with you? Uh, it sits wonderfully uh, with, with me. I, I think part of the reason why we're doing this too, uh, you mentioned the the original one we did a couple years back for your old podcast. Really, yeah, this was an excuse for us to kind of chat about movies. And, and in that case, we were chatting about a director that we love, Akira Kurosawa. And then we had talked about potentially um, – kind of testing the waters with each other with stuff that we might be less familiar with. And and the idea kind of came about of, well, why don't we kind of pick a theme and we'll each introduce a movie to the other. Maybe the, the one person's seen it. Maybe they, they, they haven't seen it. But it really just gives us an opportunity to kind of not really – pit two films against each other but to kind of introduce two films kind of broaden our our knowledge of things that we might not have chosen our ourselves and just have that opportunity to kind of sit back talk about films and uh, in this instance since we are going with a very russian director um I think it is perfectly fitting in this time and climate uh, on the eve of the celebration of American independence that we talk about uh, uh, perhaps a a much better, a much more uh, positive and creative Russian influence uh, than maybe that of which has been going on for the past few years in, in my country. Yeah, so we should probably right off the bat kind of talk about our bona fides, if you will, which are pretty much non-existent. I I love movies. Um, My background is basically that I just grew up watching a lot of movies and a lot of older movies uh, just because of my background. My my father was an immigrant who came to this country in the 50s and pretty much learned to speak English and learned American culture through watching movies of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. So when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s, those were the films that I gravitated to. And then as kind of I got older and started understanding, you know, a little bit more of the wider world of film history uh i just took to it but in no way am i any type of expert i i I think both of us just come from a place where we love film we love that it we we love what it offers we love what it can say and 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 what it it can do uh through a visual medium through uh and 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 audio medium uh especially when we talk about tarkovsky um we'll definitely talk about the very distinct ways that he uses visuals, but how that may uh, or may not exactly relate to what he is talking about with his words and his dialogue. So uh, we're just here to have fun. And probably the only the other thing I wanted to stress off the bat is this episode, we're talking about Tarkovsky. Uh, we're going to be changing themes up as we do episodes. It might not always be a director, maybe an actor, maybe a genre, maybe a style. Uh, we're, we're trying to get as creative as possible. So for people who hear this, um, 
<laughs> hopefully, uh, you know, we're going to try to be as creative and flexible in our definition of a theme as possible. And if anybody has any suggestions as well, uh, I think we're probably both very open to exploring them. Absolutely. And for myself, uh, a bit of a few self-deprecating jokes aside, my interest, my sincere interest in film as beyond sort of the the the, whatever movies I happened to be exposed to, like sort of the beginning of my intentions of being interested in film was mostly uh, goes back to a now defunct website called screen.com. A couple of video games writers that I followed from their days at giant bomb spun out and basically started a movie website. And I didn't know anything about movies, but I like those writers and their, and they started doing stuff where they would compare the remakes or the original like Yojimbo against a fistful of dollars. And uh, that's actually what got me into Kurosawa. And then they also did one where they compared the, uh, the, uh, the original Solaris by Tarkovsky against the Steven Soderbergh remake, um, which was another thing that just sort of got me. um, Does that sort of, if like those writers sort of uh, pointing at, uh, at this other world of film that I was completely unfamiliar with was sort of what launched me into that because <laughs> with this, we talked about Kurosawa last time. Uh, and that was the revelation for me. There was how relatable the stories were and how like, even in a different language, I could more or less follow what was going on. Um, <laughs> I feel like the experience for both of us, I don't want to jump too far ahead is that, uh, Watching Tarkovsky, if you're not, if you, if, uh, if you're not used to that kind of thing, it, and this is true for myself, it can be, it is not nearly as relatable and like close to my own experience as Kurosawa movies are. It feels very alienating. Uh, and that's not to say a bad thing. Like there's stuff I think about it that's really cool, but it's definitely not easily identifiable in the same way that I thought with Kurosawa. Would you, would you, agree with that assessment i would and uh you know uh and we'll this is probably as good a time as any to jump in uh so each of us picked a film and we're gonna start off with uh tarkovsky's 1979 film stalker This was my pick, and I'll just briefly kind of talk about how I came to it. So my experience with Tarkovsky um, starts and ends before doing this episode. It started and ended with Solaris. And the only reason I watched Solaris was because in college I had read the book by Stanislaw Lem uh, and really enjoyed it. I had then seen the remake by Soderbergh, which you referenced, uh, and I liked it. Uh, it was a really interesting distillation of the novel. Um, it was gorgeous to look at, and I had known about Tarkovsky, uh, never had a chance to see any of the film, so finally had an opportunity to watch Solaris, and it probably took me uh, a good like three or four sittings to you know to have the to understand the patience and the rhythm that he does in his filmmaking uh, to be able to kind of sit down and 
and get through it. So uh, when it came time to talk about it, I had said, you know, I'm definitely interested in, in watching a little bit more of his work. And since Stalker is ostensibly another science fiction film, I thought that would probably be the easiest place to go. Uh, so maybe what makes sense is I'll do like a real quick summary of what the film is about. But before I do that, John, you want to talk about kind of what your introduction to Tarkovsky is and, and, and kind of what your overall experience was before coming into this? Sure. So I had, uh, again, on the recommendation of, uh, the defunct movie sites, they had pointed me in the direction of Solaris and I watched it and had a similar reaction or a reaction of, I am not entirely sure what I just watched. Both Chris, Chris and I share a deep and abiding love of uh, metal. And in 2013, uh, one of a band, well, a band that I deeply love, and I'm pretty sure, Chris, you're on board with too, uh, called The Ocean, put in an album called Pelagial. And that they were, were talking about, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time, uh, certainly on a top 10 list. And they were talking about how the lyrical themes of the album, which is about like literally just going deeper and deeper into the ocean is, uh, largely a metaphor inspired by the movie stalker. And I knew that that was, I did some like quick Googling and saw, Oh, that's the guy that did Solaris. And, and on the strength and even though the movie itself actually has nothing to do with the album that came you know decades later um that was enough for me to go okay well if this movie sort of um if this movie was so pivotal and something that i deeply cared about maybe i should at least go and you know check it out and so for me that's that's actually how i ended up eventually getting to to watch it for the first time was because it was name dropped on the on the ocean album. Okay. So you had, right. If I'm not mistaken, you saw it before we did this. We, we did the watching specifically for the episode, right? I had seen it once, uh, prior to us talking about this for a podcast. Okay. Again, the, the aforementioned rhythms of his movies, uh, it does invite a lot of repeat viewings because there's a lot of details that are, so subtle and so easily missed that if you're not like glued to the screen the entire three hour runtime or whatever then you can miss some like crucial details so yeah the having a chance to go back even the the two times that i ended up watching it for podcasting purposes was was really helpful to go back and catch myself up on sort of anything but the like the biggest picture overview stuff yeah so real quick overview so stalker 1975 uh 1979 film uh apparently it was tarkovsky's last russian film um from there he stopped making films in russia just due to uh, a number of reasons and kind of finished out his career i think he made two more films after this one in sweden one in italy but uh, stalker is essentially post-apocalyptic russia something happens um in the countryside that basically um creates what's known as the zone it's a restricted site nothing is there um but 
through time, uh, rumors and mythology has been created that uh, if you go to the zone, there is a certain uh, room that you can go into, and if you can make it, it will grant your innermost desires. So a stalker in this case, uh, there's only really four or five characters in the film. The stalker in question is this kind of broken down guy who um, his his job is the stalker. The stalker is the person who escorts people into the zone, um, and if they can make it to the room where they can try to get their innermost uh, wishes granted. And the movie is essentially him taking a writer and a professor into the zone uh, to get them to the room and kind of what happens there. So, I mean, in the briefest of terms, that's kind of what the movie is ostensibly about. But the thing that I learned after seeing Solaris and now watching Stalker, and I, I think it's an interesting take, is that really Tarkovsky uses genre and 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 uses the bare bones of 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 this plot and a lot of plots to really just to use it to hang the discussions and and philosophical questions that he wants to address so yeah if you want to look at stalker in that way of it's about a delivery guy who brings these two people into a forbidden zone uh that could be caused by aliens could be caused by something else could just be some kind of nuclear radioactive kind of metaphor um could just be a metaphor for russian government and bureaucracy which it most certainly is you can look at it at that surface level but what at least to me, Tarkovsky seems to be more interested in is just using it as a framework to have discussions about family, about memory, about regret, and 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 things that uh, that have hung on to our psyche and our consciousness, and 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 how we deal with those things. And uh, to that end, uh, it's a fascinating film. It is very. <laughs> languid in its pacing. I, I don't know if you felt the same way, John, but I mean, it. I, I had to take... I, it took me two times to get through it the first time, and then once I kind of understood where the pacing went and how it related to Solaris, which was my only other touch point to Tarkovsky, I was able to... I watched it a second time, you know, beginning to end, and, and, and really started to tune into its rhythm. Um, it's 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 gorgeous. Uh, photography is, is amazing. There is a shot that is very famous... Um, the film largely takes place in like a when they're in basic kind of post-apocalyptic Russia. It's in, it's in like a sepia-toned uh, color palette. Uh, it's it, it's just brown and gray and black until they get into the zone. And then the zone, there's this amazing switch where they take like a trolley car that they have to um, take into the zone. And as soon as they get in there, it becomes full color. And you get these lush greens, and and you get this 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 blue and gray, and and this this almost kind of gorgeous, despairing landscape uh, that they have to travel through to get to the zone, and it's and it's exquisite, and he fills it with just these beautiful quiet moments water is a huge running theme throughout the movie it, it's also in solaris and uh he just uses it again as a meditation for these three guys to talk about the things that tarkovsky is interested in um the one thing i wanted to ask you john because it'll be it'll make more sense when we talk about the next film is um the pacing and the way that he is just very kind of quiet and deliberate in the shots um what did you think of that, and, and, and did it remind you of anybody else just in terms of uh, style or anything like that? 
I don't, I don't know if this is what you had in mind, but going back and sort of doing this sort of in reverse order than maybe what it was intended, but in watching Stalker again a couple more times, the movie I most thought of was uh, Annihilation, which in retrospect, I think I may have been at least somewhat kind of conscious of it when I first saw it, but in going back and watching it again later, it seemed just how much annihilation is actually pulling from stalker yeah uh um in terms of their people going into a forbidden unknown reality distorted kind of zone um the 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 pacing the despair that stuff seems to be there too in that movie as well um as far as my thoughts on the pacing itself um i'll probably talk about this more when we talk about uh the second movie but it seems to me that uh that tarkovsky really like something that you and i have talked about a lot and i know that i'm going to credit this actually to you is when you talk about how art is sort of a chance for us to sort of reflect on ourselves and we see ourselves in art uh more than more so than the uh than the artist um and I think that Tarkovsky's movies are especially good for doing that because he puts so much space in the movies where nothing is happening or, or you, like in, in terms of time, but also in terms of space. Like there's a lot of times when you're looking at something that is wide open or you're looking yeah. at the same thing for a long time and <clears throat> you can't help but sort of in the same way that a lot of like repetition, it, it in the same way that some like, meditation or mantras those kinds of things just sort of like draw you out of yourself um and you just sort of pour whatever's on your mind into that empty space because there's nothing there to sort of occupy it and i think that the result is that when you go and watch a movie like stalker um they, they there are like barest frameworks of of characters and plots and those things all exist, but there's a lot of time where you can just sort of, where you're just supposed to sort of sit and be present with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he, I think he's doing two things with that. And it's, it's interesting that being present with it, it just, it's the first time I kind of consider that, but it's a great way to put it. The, the, he is in this. Um, and and it, it's, it seems to be very much, a tenant of the later phase of his career, at least from what I have seen, the shots are very slow. They're very long takes. They are very quiet. There are a lot of just still moments where you're just watching kind of nature on the screen. And I was looking at it originally just as, um, there are things that he loves to show and he just wants you to sit there and contemplate it. This movie is astounding for uh, how it uses kind of close-ups. In, in, in the three characters, the professor, the writer, and the stalker, um, we have these incredible faces. Uh, and we're going to butcher tremendously probably any name that we try to say here, but I'm going to at least try to give it a shot. So the, the stalker is Alexander Kadanovsky. Um, who's got this um, these penetrating eyes once he gets out of the sepia tone and you're in the zone where it's color and you see what these guys really look like. He's got these piercing eyes and this very sh- kind of short shaved head that's that's uh, got a huge white spot. And then um, 
the writer is this guy um, Anatoly Solonitsyn, which we will talk about uh, in the other movie because he's the star of the other movie. Uh, and right. then uh, there is also, oh boy, Nikolai Grinko is the professor. Uh, you have these faces of just experience and, and lines, and Durkovsky does these amazing shots. He 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 photographs them sleeping a lot, uh, and just in in repose. There's a, there's this beautiful scene where. Uh, they get to the zone and the stalker's like, "I, you guys wait here. I just need a couple of minutes. And they don't know where he goes. He, he, he kind of goes down the hill. And we had seen prior to this nothing but just kind of desolate kind of wasteland and shanty towns and, and dust, kind of like a tumbleweed town. And we get to this kind of verdant, almost to the point of suffocating field uh, that's overrun with vegetation. Um what buildings are there are being taken over by vines and nature is kind of encroaching back and he just goes to this this place of fields and he just lays down in these fields just for like a, a couple of minutes and in a normal film you know it would cut you'd see it you know close up to the face get back but Tarkovsky takes his time and he just lets you sit and watch this guy kind of exhale and just you know sit with thoughts that you really don't know and he he does that a couple of times where he's either just kind of letting you kind of contemplate or again it, it seems like a lot of this movie is a lot of it, it, this movie is a lot of talking and it's a lot of talking about ideals and why are you here well i'm here because of this and no it's actually i'm here because of this and why do you do what you do and as those things come out um tarkovsky is obviously talking a lot about He's talking about politics, he's talking about religion, he's talking about philosophy, he's talking about faith. Uh, so you're using these kind of quiet moments to really focus in on what's going on, but then he'll often just kind of, after it's done, go to that place that you're talking about, John, where it's just, it's contemplation time, and it's almost, not only you're contemplating the scene, but he's giving you that breath to kind of, hey, I just talked about this thing that's important to me and, and is and is in, important in the context of, of the film. Before we move on to another plot point, Let's just sit and we'll use this kind of visual that I've composed and let you just kind of chew on what, what was just talked about. And it's, it's a very deliberate, it's a very um, methodical way of doing the film that, especially the second time through, again, it, it took me a while to kind of catch the rhythm of the movie. But once I did, it, I really appreciated how he was able to do that in this thing. Yeah, I think the... Something that uh, in that sort of there's a few shots and even some dialogue here and there that sort of comes around the contours of this sort of silence or this this motif where it almost feels like the the characters are being watched like there is a sense you and so and then this is definitely going to come up in when we're talking about Andre Rublev but uh, the there's there's a sense there's a sense i feel when they're in the zone that they are being watched by something that 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 whether it's the zone itself or a being within the zone that there is something that is definitely there's something that's definitely present and felt but not seen and so when he and that's and part of that is when the stalker is th uh taking those makeshift like those nuts uh, that he has where he yeah. metal nuts that he ties the thing around and he throws them to see like where the traps go off. You never actually, there's never a moment where one of those traps actually goes is set off. And so you're always like, 
there's enough in this movie to suggest that the zone is real and that the guy, the stalker is actually knows what he's talking about. But when you, you, when you see him throwing all these things around to try and feel his way around, it's always felt it's never seen. Um, when the, the writer is about to go off on his own, a voice says you should stop and turn back. And everyone assumes that it was someone else who said it, but no one ever actually admits to having said it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great part of the movie. And it, what doesn't probably get talked about enough with with movies like this is the style also really affords itself just as some really great tension. That that scene where the writer goes to takes the shortcut <laughs> is extremely tense. And and then likewise toward the end they're approaching the room, right? There's this tunnel that uh, he forces the writer to go through. There's a there's a trick with picking matches, and uh, the writer has to go through a tunnel, and it is extremely tense and nerve-wracking just from that pacing and, and the way that Tarkovsky kind of sets the scene. And because and all of these things sort of work together in a way that you can feel the experience of being like haunted or watched, um, or uh, for the stalker, like he's you're with him you have faith in him that he's going to lead everyone through but there's never a moment where you're there's no hand holding where you get to see the proof of it other than like again the briefest of glimpses here and there and mo- like and so it's an interesting way of trying to get <laughs> in a visual medium like film it's an, it's interesting to try and convey everything almost all through feeling and through not showing anything yeah, you know, that, that actually brings up a question I had for you. So the whole time, well, not the whole time, but for maybe roughly half of it, I part of my brain was trying to determine, okay, is the zone real? Is, is, is the room real? Is this a real thing that has happened? Something crashed, whether it was aliens or, or whatever, and, and created this thing. Or is it really all in their head? Was there some type of... Uh, nuclear war and then years later right the the mythology of why you couldn't go into the area which originally would have been because of radioactivity um you know does does a mystery and a mythology build up around the area that they believe so intently that that that's why the scenario kind of presents it, it itself i feel like that Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so my my brain kind of was wrestling with that for about half the movie. And then at one point, it just became, I don't care. Uh, it, like, it kind of goes away because I got so caught up in just the mood that they're going through that I I don't know if, well, we, and we'll have to, we'll do a spoiler section because I definitely have some questions for you about the end of the movie. But for the most part, my brain just kind of let it go and, and said, you know what, it is what it is. I'm not really here to determine whether it's real or it's not. I'm just here to watch how these characters kind of bounce against each other and get through this journey, right? It, it is definitely a classic case, at least for me, of it was the journey, not the not the destination that was important. Yeah, I think definitely by the time you're getting to, what, like once you're in the business, like once you're in the zone and those that tension starts to ratchet up, it it the reality or lack of reality seems to fade to the background. Like they are actually having those arguments and, you know, at one point even coming to almost coming to blows uh, over sort of the questions of how do we proceed? What does this mean? 
something uh and i think actually i think it's the writer i think uh who ends up personifying most of those questions and in his character where he starts to um in contrast to the stalker who is you know he's done this he's done this at least once if not more than once like that's his job so he he knows the deal he's totally bought in whereas the writer by the end is uh is completely uh, if not con- if he's not convinced that it's not real then he's at least convinced that it's not actually good to go into the room yeah uh and so yeah i mean <clears throat> i don't i'm not sure how we should section off spoilers but it, it's i mean the the climax of the movie is that at the as they're on the threshold of going into the room which you never actually see inside the room which is super smart uh as far as trying it's like the yeah it's like the briefcase in pulp it is exactly the briefcase even to the point of right you get the one shot from inside the room looking at them as they're looking inside the room but that's all you ever see (laughs) Just like the briefcase, <laughs> you see the yeah, point of view from sure. the briefcase opening up, and the, and the, and ultimately they decide not to go in, uh, into the room, and, and I think that's largely on the arguments put uh, forward by, uh, the the writer. Although I think the professor has his own reasons, but essentially, the idea that and like the culmination of them choosing to not go into the room is largely a reflection of the conversations they're having about what does it mean to actually get the things that you want most deeply? Like what if the things you want most in life aren't actually the things that you're consciously aware of and that being shown the true nature of yourself might actually drive you to uh, terrible things as it does for some of the people who were told about in the story. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing, and I, I wanted to kind of talk to you about. So th- there is definitely a parallel to journeying to some type of kind of soul salvation. There's there's a corollary there to the to the fact of the room, and and one of the points that kind of struck out with me, stuck to me about that was you find out that it becomes a plot point later. But in in, in the beginning, there's a part where the three of them are never supposed to split up. And at one point, the professor who's been carrying around a backpack forgets his backpack. And he's like, I have to have the backpack. And he he kind of abandons them to go get the backpack. And the stalker's freaking out because you can never go back the same way you ever came. You have to go different each time. And he doesn't know if he's ever going to see the professor again. Later on, he does see the they do meet up with, with the professor and he has his backpack. And the backpack plays into the story later from a more kind of definitive narrative point. But when I was watching that, one of the notes that I took was, you know, um, not being able to to relinquish your worldly possessions before getting to that place of salvation. And there are these little touchstones throughout the movie that kind of paralleled for me a lot of talk about faith and talking about whether it's kind of you know, being good and getting your your heavenly reward or, or or something similar. I kept finding these these small moments here and there that kind of pepper the film, but never so much that it ever became a distinct. This is what the film is trying to say. So I was wondering if did you see any of those things, or were you drawing different kind of parallels to kind of what some of the main things Tarkovsky wanted to talk about in in Stalker? Well, I think when it comes to faith, I think mostly the 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 faith that is of interest is the faith of the stalker um, in his own, 
because he seems to be this like he seems to be an expert in the whole thing like he um you 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 don't you as the audience never get access to what his uh you like you don't get access to the interiority of his head you don't get to see like how he knows this he doesn't ever really explain it he's just you really just have to like go on faith that he's sort of leading you through the whole thing yeah. and his and so he's the person that you have faith in but then he also doesn't seem to risk like for him going into the zone is a risky affair but something that he never feel he never really doubts himself until the very end yeah that was a weird thing so to so so to my mind he never really it, it, it it's a risk for him but the real risk is in him not doing it because as you find out at the end uh, this is not so much of a spoiler but one of the people is there uh for more nefarious reasons um and when the prospect of not being able to go to the zone anymore becomes a real distinct possibility right that that's when the stalker breaks down and you find out his whole reason is because due to his situation and you find a little bit about his past and his family he's got nothing but this and he has that moment right where he's begging please don't take this away from me this is literally the only thing that i have left as the epilogue to this to this adventure after their return where they have not uh after they have not entered the room but have returned successfully um it seems that like the stalker is talking with his mostly absent wife um in the terms of being in the film uh and and starts to talk about how he's like doubting whether or not any of this is real whether this makes sense like am i wasting my life doing this again not necessarily or i think it's mostly about am i wasting my life more so than uh is the zone real or not but he definitely has this moment of like doubting moment of crisis um and it doesn't really get to resolve in that moment for him though and i guess this is a this is a spoiler but for me what sort of saves not him but us the audience in watching it is the last shot of the movie um because his daughter so let's so let's let's actually do this let's let's we'll put some type of uh, spoiler alert sound in here spoiler we are about to give away I, I I don't know if it's giving away the ending of the movie because my biggest question for you is I do not get that last shot in the movie. I, I don't understand what it's supposed to represent. I've I've got questions about how it's presented as well. So consider this your warning. We are about to spoil a movie that can't really be spoiled because the ending is so to at least to me out of like out of left field and it doesn't connect it doesn't tie the movie together in any type of bow but it's an ending so let's talk about that ending again the the, some of the details in this movie are just like one and again in a three-hour movie a single reference to something that if you're like look away for a second and you miss it then it just sort of loses the whole thing so they there is a brief mention so say what the so so maybe say what the ending is so that it'll make sense in context of what what you're talking about sure the last shot of the movie is uh stalker's daughter um sitting alone at a kitchen table her name is monkey by the way for for some reason the daughter's name is monkey (laughs) 
I mean, I have nicknames for my kids too, and and the and the and two of the three main characters in this movie are literally referred to only by their profession. So yeah, I don't. So there are no names in the movie. It is stalker, stalker's wife, writer, professor, and monkey. Those right. are the characters in the movie. <laughs> so so monkey is sitting at the table, and she uses psychokinesis to push glasses across the table, and then that's. That's the last shot. This and again, this no, yes. has not been a movie that has featured any, like other than the fact that the zone is everything feels weird and colorful and possibly oppressive. But there's nothing that you see in the movie where you go, "Well, that's physically impossible." Right. In fact, that's part of like part of the trick of this movie is that it does potentially allow for readings that suggest that this is largely like psychological as opposed to physical until that last shot that last shot for me what it's supposed to do is supposed to be like no this has like yes all of the psychological stuff is real but this is actually happening because they do set up that because the stalker's gone to the zone and he goes to the zone all the time like he's it's similar to like being irradiated not necessarily irradiated in, but in the sense that when he has a kid, his kid's going to be all messed up because he's been to the zone so much. So my takeaway from that is that him having gone to the zone so many times and at the end being like, I don't, I don't know about any of this. His daughter secretly using ment- uh, psychokinetic powers um, is sort of the like, no, this is the proof that this is actually real, that this is actually happening. Um, whether or not the room is good, I still like that for me is actually the struggle is trying to figure out, well, the protagonist is the stalker and we know that it's all real, but I actually found the writer's arguments very compelling about yeah. how this is terrible. <laughs> like we don't actually want this, but you get to the end and you see monkey moving those glasses with her mind. And it's like, Oh, well, regardless of how we feel about this, this is the, it's like if the if at the end of Inception the t- the the top spinning, but you actually got an answer to it, like because the thing is still spinning and you don't know if it's going to stop or not, and so it's ambiguous about well whether is he still in a dream or not. This is that, but definitively answering the question. See, so let let me throw my spin on it. So I I, I I I I kind of felt the same thing, but I didn't equate it to the room at all. So. The first after laughing out loud, I, I, I literally after that so much tension and that like just just being so in, involved and so quiet. As soon as she psychically makes these glasses move, I, I I did kind of burst out laughing for a second. I did not expect it. Um, but it what it brought me to was more nothing to do with the room. The room still may or may not be real, but like to me, it, it brought home the kind of. Well, maybe I should say it this way, that it it led me more to believe that the room isn't real, that this is the effect of, to your point, all the radioactivity that this guy's been bringing back has affected her, which is why that last scene, when they're they're supposed to be back home, right, they're back in the sepia tone, and and most of the movie at the end is back in that sepia tone coloring, except for when she's there. And when you see the daughter, it's still in vibrant color, and that last scene where she's laying her head on, on the table and psychically moving the glasses, that's in color 
to me kind of representing the influence the zone has had on her right to your point but i i maybe it's my struggle as as well it, it to me it almost it it doesn't kill the movie for me because i loved the ambiguity and having this kind of diminishes that ambiguity just enough to make me like i don't know that we needed it because it doesn't make it more ambiguous it, it kind of leans it to your perspective in one way and to my perspective in another and one of the things i struggle with with the, with the movie is did that ending as bizarre as it is diminish it somewhat for me i think that um there, there's something that feels archetypal about this movie and it's possibly because of the character names just given their professions um and and, and it's wild to think that this is supposed to be one of his sort of more pulpier movies given just how we've even struggled to talk about it um because it's you know it's science fiction but also it's just this weird other thing um i think that there's something about this that i could go back to um do again just like just super practical realities of life a three-hour movie is not something i can normally dedicate uh myself to and so that means that just for that reason alone i probably won't watch it too many more times but there's something that like there is something that draws me in to this kind of story where i could um say oh yeah here's the you know it's not like star wars archetypal in that sense (laughs) but it, it kind of it kind of hints at at some of those hits at some of that, those ideas for me that I can latch onto, even if, you know, you might be playing angry birds or whatever during, you know, some of the quieter moments. Sure. I, I could, I could definitely see myself maybe like, I don't know, once every 10 years or so coming back to it. It feels like, yeah, it feels like that type of film. One thing that I want to call out because it, it's it's going to come up when we talk about the next film is, so this film is two hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> it, it may feel like three, but it's not. And the only reason I point that out is because our next film, at least in the shorter version, which is the one that I watched, is three hours and three minutes long. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's move on then. So the uh, the next movie that uh, we're going to be talking about from uh, Tarkovsky is uh, Andrei Rublev. And that was now, your pick, right? That was my pick, and my I had not actually seen it prior to this one. Um, I had in my I have sort of a completionist, perfectionist. Like if there's something I like, I want to see all of it, um, and so. Andre Rublev seemed like a something that I could probably get my hands on. And so I was like, I'm going to pick it for this podcast because it's going to force me to watch it. And so I don't really have a history with this movie beforehand. Uh, how about yourself? Uh, I have no history with it. Uh, I kind of knew what it was. Uh, and I knew it was a Criterion film. <laughs> so when you picked it, I was like, okay, well, I kind of know what it is. I know it's a Criterion film. That's it. Yep. And so the this is Tarkovsky's second movie, and uh, it came out. The release of this is is super weird. Um, 
mostly because there's a lot of issues with uh with a lot of issues with the film being like i think the original cut was like three and a half hours yeah and then the uh a bunch of going back and forth with uh the russian film board and issues of censorship that kind of stuff and the uh such that i think it ended up coming out in like the the shorter merely three hour version that we saw um which is i think like the criterion version has the longer version it has but both, it seems yeah. like yeah so I th- but i think the i think the general accepted wisdom or it, it seems like most people are happy with the with the three hour version and so i was happy to pick that one yeah and um, that's and 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 that's tarkovsky's supposedly his his preferred cut as well is the shorter cut and so that version i think came out in 1969 um there is again like because of censorship issues there was a there was a huge there was a long delay between its being completed and its being released um and in some cases the censorship is you know it's contentious although tarkovsky in the stuff that i read he almost seemed to treat the censorship stuff like a game like let's see what we can get away with. There's sort of almost a, like certainly it's an issue of contention and there's even like the film itself also seems to be talking about potential censorship or, oh, yeah. or, 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 uh, so it's not that he's doesn't have a problem with it, but he, but definitely came across in the readings that I did that he almost seemed to treat it like a game as opposed to like, how dare you, you know, how dare you stop my art? Um, and so yeah, the 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 creation and release of this movie is uh, complicated, and so we're just going to stick with uh, the three-hour version. Um, <laughs> it's funny, something I don't remember the words you said, but in the stalker part, you were talking. You said something that reminded me that apparently in this movie, the because um, the, the the movie is loosely based on the life of uh, icon painter Andrei Rublev and there's not actually a lot of detail known about his actual life. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of the contents of the movie itself are largely, um, artistic license. And so this is really a movie about, well, what do, uh, what do, what does art Tarkovsky want to do in this? Uh, yeah. Well, like what, what does he want to talk about? Um, and the, apparently the script for this movie almost in no way resembles the final product. Um, like for him in this case, at least in this case, the script was basically an excuse to get production rolling. And then he just sort of did whatever he felt like, um, which to me is actually the, it actually ends up being the central thematic element of the finale of the movie, um, which we'll get to in a minute. And by a minute, it'll probably be a bit longer. But so, <laughs> so this this movie, again, we'll go through a. I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis of the plot, but it almost seems weird to talk about it that way because there's almost no plot to this movie. Yeah, plot it is, is a, really secondary in this film. <laughs> like even more so than Stalker. Oh, very um, much so. Yeah. So the there are I believe there's eight different uh vignettes let's say mm-hmm. uh, different points throughout uh 
Rublev's uh, life. And in some of the vignettes, he is center, like center stage. He is the main character that's moving through this story. And in other cases, he's barely present, where he's just sort of a witness um, to whatever's happening. And in fact, I would say a lot of the movie is actually sort of taking place around him. And he is often so sort of like soaking in the environment, uh, whether it's, you know, people being slaughtered mercilessly or uh, naked pagans in their rituals, uh, in their, you know, summer rituals. Like he's just sort of like absorbing everything and then occasionally taking action and feeling bad about it. Chris, what did you think of this movie? (laughs) So if you had given me a choice and you said to me, you can watch a two and a half hour science fiction movie that deals with existence and uh, there are potential psychokinetic powers involved in it or you can watch a over three hour movie that ostensibly is the life of a Russian uh, icon painter Uh, I am probably 99 times out of 100 going to pick the science fiction one that is shorter and has the potential for psychotelekinetic powers. Every instance where I choose that, I would be 100% wrong because I loved Andrei Rublev out of all proportion. It is in every way that Stalker is kind of meditative and methodical and very deliberate um, and and steady and paced. Uh, Andrei Rublev is dynamic and fluid and is bursting at the seams with style. Uh, one, one of the things we didn't talk about with, with Stalker is its uh, aspect ratio, which is, I, I think it's it's 137. It's it's kind of that uh, television kind of boxed format. Um, and it's framed very beautifully in that that format, but, but, but it is what it is. Uh, Andrei Rublev, which is his second film, is in gorgeous widescreen, um, beautiful black and white photography, very fluid um, from the very opening where there is that aerial balloon ride um, over all the fields, which inevitably crashes to the last section, the, the bell, where there are just these gorgeous shots, especially when they're hoisting the bell up and you just get these amazing kind of running shots as they prepare everything and all the ropes are there. And then there's a shot from the top of the tower looking down on the bell and all the ropes are like spider webs coming down. This movie is, is sumptuous and gorgeous and, 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 and dynamic in a way that stalker isn't. Uh, which is kind of interesting to kind of think that something that came so much at the end, Tarkovsky definitely looks like at least if you were to compare these two films and 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 Solaris, which I think is like 1973 and is very much in the stalker style, um, he evolved from a very kind of dynamic, flowing style to something that was much more deliberately paced. Uh, this is gorgeous. It is it is primal. Uh, it, it is very much like Stalker, and to the point you made earlier, uh, the story of Andrei Rublev is simply a framework to hang 
the the digressions and discussions that Tarkovsky is interested in. Again, whether it's fate, uh, uh, faith rather, whether it is the nature of artistic inspiration and and how that that works, uh, wh whether that inspiration comes from God or it comes from luck or it comes from making your own inspiration, he's really just interested in those discussions, and he just decided to kind of use the very uh, loosely inspired life of Andrei Rublev to 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 do it. Uh, talking about the different sections, the, um, the, the the bell is definitely my favorite section. Uh, but when you talk about the raid uh, in in particular, where it is, I mean, there is stuff that happens that is just it's just astounding to watch through the, this film. You see a horse falls down a flight of stairs. You see dogs viciously attack each other. Uh, people are shot. There is one scene where a bishop has gold, uh, molten gold, pulled poured into his mouth as a punishment. I mean, there is some crazy shit going on in this movie. There and is that like predates <laughs> like Game of Thrones by decades, right? Oh, the yeah. Pouring I gold. mean, yeah. the, the section with the pagans, I mean, there's full frontal nudity just going crazy. And it's just, it's a wild movie, but it's wildness never, I mean, it, it's so exciting to watch. It, it's so exuberant, but it never takes away from, again, just this, this is a very, this is a, a story that is so deeply grounded in 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 questions of our humanity and our relationship with each other, our relationship to God, and our relationship to art. And it is just, it, it is phenomenal. This is something that I am uh, going to definitely be watching again, watching it more than once a decade. Um, it is it's astounding to see that this is how Tarkovsky in just his second film was operating i agree it's yeah the that yeah if you think of especially the, like from a technical perspective the this the raid sequence is like I, I can't imagine that a second time director uh pulling something like that off that seems outstandingly wild and ambitious to me um the the bell sequence in particular, I really, I think it stands in for the movie itself, mostly because, again, I think the bell is a metaphor for the actual production of the movie. Because when you learn at the end that the, the, the bell maker was not actually given a secret, but he managed to pull it off anyway. Um, he doesn't have a, a blueprint to guide him forward. Uh, that sounds to me like Tarkovsky operating to make this movie. Because he said that he actually, like, apparently the one of the people that worked on the script with him actually ended up leaving the movie because Tarkovsky was making so many reckless changes to what the movie was going to be, deviating so far from the script that essentially the script was useless at that point. Um, and you can talk about the... Uh, you can... <laughs> and again, I guess this is where we'll probably use this to bridge to, to have the conversation about faith. But whether you think that's a a good thing or a bad thing is probably that's going to vary per person and, and sort of gauge your response to what the purpose and value of faith is in the first place. Um, the, I mean, certainly if I was to walk into a building and was told that the architect of the thing just sort of forgot the plans and they just sort of put stuff together, like that would be just dis very disquieting. But, you know, 
you look at that, I mean, theoretically, everyone looked at that bell and thought, yeah, no, that's the church bell. Like that's, that's the thing. So, uh, it, it presents a possible like, uh, case for the ambiguous nature of, uh, faith. And when I was, this is sort of the central thing, my central takeaway from this movie after I was, as I was watching it, I was considering that like, I don't think there's a lot of like hot internet discourse about Tarkovsky at this point, but I did see different strands of film people talking about like, for example, if you go to like, I'm not Catholic personally, but they have like, you know, top Catholic movies or like culturally important stuff. Like they do stuff like that. And when it comes to movies that have religious themes in them, and I'm not talking like those cheap trash Christian movies, like, we're talking and and they and so people who take issues of faith seriously in film will talk about andre rublev as being like one of the great movies about you know faith and god and and art and just sort of how central it is and it's easy to see why that is because he's an icon painter he's a monk like that the the subject matter of uh what of his the content of his life is very does very much carry a religious um surface to it and and then a lot of the like bonus supplemental stuff on the criterion blu-ray a lot of academic types were like oh this religious stuff is just way too overstated this is andre uh, the the rublev character in the movie is supposed to be is is actually very secular and he's it's really just window dressing and they set examples of him being sort of tempted by the pagan uh women as an example of sort of he's not really a good uh, he's not really a good priest or not not really a good monk a religious figure in that sense because he's sort of a very down-to-earth um normal person and i compare both of the and my reaction to that was well what do you think faith is like do people who are do not have faith think that people of faith just sort of walk around with a sort of like inner glowing pulse that comes out of them where they're just tranquil and serene all the time and this is where i think the the reflection that you see yourself in the art comes uh comes into full swing for me because i see people making very compelling arguments on either side saying this is a religious movie this is not a religious movie and me going of course it's a religious movie. That's like people who are religious and have that kind of faith exist in the real world. And you can make jokes about how they, you know, believe in fantasies and fairy tales. And so they don't, but like, come on, they do. And so there's, I don't think that the down to earth nature of these sort of historical figures, it sure it humanizes them and it gives them, it takes them out of like mythologies and histories and sort of makes them much, much less supernatural. Um, but that is, I mean, but that doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't have faith as, as it being an important core of it. It just means that that core of it exists in a very material world. Yeah, I think so. It's 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 interesting. I we, we have a a different view of the film uh, in that respect, but I I I would agree with you a hundred percent. With I, I I find it very disconcerting for anyone to watch this film 
and simply brush off the the faith and religious aspects as simple ornamentation. It, that just it doesn't make sense. Um, when I watch it, so like particularly if, if if we want to talk about that section with the temptation by the 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 pagans, um, just due to to my background, I I am Christian, but not as probably um, not as rigorous in my theology uh, as I once was, uh, though I, I definitely acknowledge it and, and stand by it. So when I watched that that scene, to me, because of what I'm bringing to it, um, it does speak a lot about, um, as opposed to temptation of faith, faith more temptation of, uh, of art for me personally. So it's, you know, there are, are so many things of how do I how do I stand by my art? What is, what is it that drives my art? What, what guides me in my art? And in this particular case, it is very much faith and it is very much belief. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to, to watch the parallel of him being tempted in that early part during the last judgment section, uh, where he eschews it. Uh, you know, I, I can't be that way. But then when we get to the end of the movie, um, and it, it's, I think it's during silence. So it's, it's before the bell sequence, but it's the sequence where, um, he's taken the vow of silence. He, he, he's with the girl who's the fool, um, Dorochka, and, uh, she, get swept away and taken by the uh, invading Tartar. So the guy who was the lead Tartar in the previous section and, and, and decimated the village, uh, they're kind of in occupied territory now, and he takes her um, as his as his wife, and she seems completely agreeable to it. Uh, and Andre kind of, you know, runs to her and tries to get her to not go because he is so intent on having her live the code of faith that he lives and she eschews it and he kind of falls into despair and kind of how i read the bell is at the end the 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 story of the young boy who um decides to kind of lie about the fact that his father imbued him with the secrets of building a great bell and he takes on building this bell for the uh, grand prince uh at the end when it finally comes true and he says to andre you know in in, in tears my my father never told me i i i just kind of i had to take my shot it's that eminem kind of look <laughs> I, I had nothing i had to take a shot or i wasn't going to get it andre kind of sees the to me the reality of for him faith guides his hand but that's not the only way and it, it, it's a it's, it's a beautiful for me circle of the nature of art uh to diminish his passion and his in, inspiration being based in faith is not seeing what the intent of the movie is, is that one is equally as valid to, uh, as another, depending on the perspective that you're coming from. And that's one of the things I just found. So as long as this movie is, the fact that they put it into these um, sections really works that you can take one section and see the lesson that's being demonstrated in it and see how that kind of turns around and comes back on itself in a later section. And it, it's just in, in that moment, at least for me, Looking at it more from from that perspective, I found so much of value there. I, I don't. I promise. Well, I guess I shouldn't promise this in case we do something else in future episodes. But not wanting to give too much uh, homework for uh, for the listener, there is a piece that I came uh, came across that came out a couple years ago. Um, uh, 
on a website called 4 by 3 Magazine. The author's name is Phoebe uh, Pua, and the title is The Silent God of Ingmar Bergman and Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, and while the, the central thing is comparing and contrasting where their styles are similar, but how the the silence of God, so to speak, um, if it has very different purposes in Bergman versus Tarkovsky. And whereas in movies like seven seal, which is an obvious uh, choice there, the, the fact that God is silent throughout the whole movie is a, is a, a, is a, is torturous is the struggle. It's the reason you walk away from faith because God never talks. And whereas in Tarkovsky's movies, I think the, I think where people sometimes the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I think where sometimes people think that this isn't really a movie about faith is that there's not really that God is does not seem to have a a supernatural presence to the movie, but the but uh, Phoebe in this article or in this in this uh, in this essay makes a point that God's silence in Tarkovsky movies is often the prerequisite for faith. So it's not that it's torturous. It's just, no, you, you can't, <laughs> it wouldn't be faith if God spoke. Um, and so the, the ways that I think these all come together is that uh, absolutely the, uh, this is a, like there, there's a lot more going on to it. And I actually want to move on to what it's going to be the, uh, what the, the, the last part that I really want to dig into when it comes to themes in this movie. But Closing out this part, I think that it actually, if silence is a prerequisite for operating on faith, then that allows him to make movies that are very materially grounded, that never exhibit any signs of funny logic or uh, sort of, yeah, because you could certainly do that in, like, movies have a ton of that even without being about religion, right? Um, and the uh, he's basically able to make movies that are very based in a material world um and yet you do get you can get a sense of something that might be driving them without ever without without that world being sort of translucent it's always opaque can we just really quick be be a little bit more surfacey and just we didn't mention this before but just uh how phenomenal the cast is because <laughs> we talked about stalker and I, I only just read about it now when we were talking about the, the faith piece. So we talked about the fact that, uh, um, there are returning characters. So in, in fact, the writer in stalker, uh, is, is Andre Rublev in this movie. Uh, this was him as a, as a much younger man. This is like 15 or so years, years earlier. And he's got such a striking, he has like an Ed Harris quality about him, especially when he's um, younger in the film. That that is again it just speaks to Tarkovsky. He's got such an eye for faces. Um, and what I just found out, and I did not know, is that uh, there are three main monks in the film that are all um, I icon painters there's there there's andre there's uh kirill who is uh, the guy who kind of uh turns away from the monk life because of petty jealousies and and he comes back at the end and there's also his friend um daniel uh who is the professor in stalker i did not know that so two of our uh, main cast members from uh stalker are in th this movie and again uh for for anyone who hasn't watched the movie before uh i i would 
ask that as you're watching just look at the faces in the film they are so memorable they have such character and such distinction uh it, it, it it's just phenomenal and, and and just all around the uh the the performances across the board are, are just fantastic sorry i i had to bring that out <laughs> the tarkovsky is supposed to have been someone who tended to think more in terms of big picture shots. So like, and, and, and any number of shots in either of these movies, you'll notice how, how just absolutely detailed everything is just foreground background. He's got stuff going on everywhere. And, and as such, he tended to not focus as much of his time on, uh, on like coaching actors as much. And he tended to prefer, um, he tended to prefer like non-professional actors who would be themselves. And so he was like casting was largely a case of, well, are you as a person reflective of the kind of character that we want for the movie um, so that he could focus on bigger picture stuff? Because the guy who, um, because uh, Anatoly uh, Solonitsyn, uh, who is the Andre Rublev and also in Stalker, he, this was his first big movie. Like he, I don't think he had really done much of any acting, um, uh, prior to that, or at least nothing of particular note. Like it was, he was, he was sort of a, he's discovered by Tarkovsky, almost a Mifune to Tarkovsky's Kurosawa. And so that to me, it's interesting. The casting stuff is on, on faces and stuff that you can like sort of read from a, because that stuff was all meant to be more naturalistic and less like performative in the like a capital a acting sense of it yeah i i think right to your point i, I he's he's looking at <clears throat> features and in, in his casting he's not per, performance seems to be secondary to just features and does this person you know in, in embody what he's trying to get across it just so happens that at least for me in this film, just a, across the board, they also just happen to just be really good at what they're doing. Well, yeah, like that's, that's not to denigrate the performances. I just think it's, I think both things are true in that. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. That's how, that's how he casted his movies. And also it really worked for him. Like he, you know, you can't argue with results at a certain point and his results when it comes to casting actors was very good. The last thing I think is worth talking about before uh, we wrap up uh, our Andre Rublev chat is the government angle. So it's def, and I think this actually sort of ping pongs against similar um, perceptions of the work as well as Tarkovsky himself. Whereas the the one of the driving factors behind the movie being censored and re-edited and shortened and delayed for so long was the way in which the, and even though this would have been centuries earlier and certainly not the Soviet government of the time, but the ruling Russian body at the time treating its people so poorly and oppressing them so severely, they, that was a real point of contention for the government. And so they said, you have to take this stuff out to, um, so that doesn't make us doesn't make Russia look bad, and and it's true that the um and it's true that the like the I guess the 
the balloon uh, person at the beginning of the movie was supposed to be someone of note. And Rublev himself was at the time of the movie's production enjoying something of a renaissance within Russia. Like they were just so hyped that, hey, look, we have this awesome painter. Look how awesome we are as Russia. And the movie itself paints Rublev as a more human, like a more down to earth human type. So I can see that like it's not in anyone's imagination. The government actively suppressed and censored his work. And uh, and this movie is largely about that as well. He like it's hard to do this. He doesn't like it. And so and yet in reading interviews with Tarkovsky afterwards, because eventually he left the Soviet Union and he made his last two films outside of the Soviet Union. So you would assume yeah, Stalker was the Stalker was the last one. And so you'd assume that and, and people who would interview Tarkovsky would ask him and they'd say like, hey, are you anti-soviet are you you know what, whatever term you want to use for it you basically like are you a dissident or you know capitalist or what, whatever however you want to describe it but he actually refused to um he actually didn't take on those labels he actually rejected those labels he said i'm not i'm not anti-soviet union um he and so for me where this draws another a similar parallel to the is this a religious movie or not a religious movie is the idea of Tarkovsky being Russian, potentially being Soviet and not finding any contradiction in himself by, uh, by criticizing the Soviet government. So for him, criticizing the Soviet government did not mean that he was anti-Soviet. He said like he's he's trying to carve out a space for himself within the culture that similarly reflects back and criticizes it. Because remember, he thought of censorship as a game. He he's like, okay, this is I have my issues with it, but like let's I'm not going to walk away from this just because you don't like what I have to say. Do you see that reflected in the film? I'll start by saying if 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 that is so, I didn't do a lot of reading on Tarkovsky's kind of views of the regime uh, that y- you had, but it certainly seems to echo kind of what's going on in America right now, right? And and there are calls that if you criticize the current uh, the current uh, president and the 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 current political situation, that you are in fact un-American and. You know, one, including myself, would argue that criticizing the thing of which you belong is is essential to kind of living in this living in this country and being a, a, a part of this particular culture, whether you're, you're you're doing it from a cultural perspective, from a faith based perspective or from a political perspective. Uh, it, it's it, it's healthy and right to be able to criticize those things that you find unjust. Uh, so whether or not that is true in his life, I think it is definitely true in the film. I, I mean, the whole section there, I mean, you can talk about just th- th- the raid in general, which is just this vicious, um, just visage, I'm sorry, vicious <laughs> attack on the community and and particularly on the church. Uh, but there are earlier kind of pieces all throughout the the film where where that that presence is, is felt right in the very beginning. The the section with the jester uh, who who is you know having fun and is having some kind of 
you know, fun criticism uh, to, to make the people taking refuge in the barn laugh to then be arrested and imprisoned for, for 10 years is speaking to something that most certainly happened in Soviet era Russia and, 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 and is a, and is a, an extremely valid criticism without kind of taking away from the other moments which speak to a, 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 a pride of community, a, a pride of a being. I mean, Tarkovsky shoots a lot of these scenes, especially the scenes in nature and the scenes that are out, with, a, with an eye of beauty. You can't uh, film, to my mind, something so beautifully with such venom and hatred. So it, 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 it certainly seems to reflect in the film the things that you're saying that you can have criticisms and you can have these things against whether it's a government or whether it's an organized religion or anything but at the same time come to it from a place of i'm criticizing because i love this thing so much and i love the ideal that it stands for and what like and you could you could probably come at that i think without having um like if you didn't know anything about Tarkovsky, you could probably make those inferences from the material. But I think it's even only made stronger by the fact that the government did actively censor his stuff and that he still came away from it going, I'm not anti-Soviet. I was like, wow, they actually tried to stop you like material. Like we can, you know, look up historical records and find this stuff to be true. And he, he, while not slowing down his criticism uh also didn't distance himself from the you know from that identity which i don't know that to me is 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 wild and kind of awesome yeah i think that it's probably going to do it for uh the main uh chat of our two movies hope you all have enjoyed yourselves uh i think uh one thing we want to do to reward people who've made it through to the end um, is to just give a recommendation. That's what people do on podcasts is they recommend things. Um, Chris, if you don't mind, I'll, uh, I'll take the first crack. Uh, since both of these movies talk a lot about, um, well, Andre Rublev, especially so, but even in stalker uh, talk about faith and sort of a faith that is, unrequited or unsubstantiated not not unsubstantiated but not definitively shown it is a faith in the sense that you are trusting that this is true um for me the other film that does that the most for me is martin scorsese's silence um that is a movie that is entirely about um people undertaking a mission on faith and just meeting absolutely nothing that would be encouraging or point them in the direction of success that it is one failure after another. And the, uh, it is entirely devastating and despairing and the ending, which apparently not, well, I'm not going to spoil the ending. My takeaway from the ending was like, I felt just incredibly like emotionally healing. And it was just like, I actually cried, watching it it was just so moving my recommendation is um something that we briefly mentioned earlier in the podcast so um 
one of the huge inspirations that Tarkovsky had from a filmic perspective is Igmar Bergman. Uh, watching Andrei Rublev, th- th- that that should certainly not come as, as a surprise if you've ever seen any films by Bergman. So, Bergman also had a really cool habit of you know kind of taking um, frameworks and um, short kind of interesting narratives and and using them as a launching point to talk about other things that were on his mind so why not if you haven't already seen this um you really need to if for nothing so you can see inevitably when the new bill and ted movie comes out you'll you'll see where that reference comes from but (laughs) check out the seventh seal uh it is a phenomenal movie uh, gorgeously shot um and you know beyond the uh really kind of meme worthy now at at this point chess game with with death it does the same thing where a uh it it takes a very kind of loose story knight returning from the crusades um bargains for his life with death to live just a little bit longer uh and it uses that very loose framework to talk about a lot of things that really have um run through Bergman's mind throughout his entire filmic career. So it's an earlier film, uh, which means it's a little bit shorter than some of the later work that that he's done. Uh, it is very catchy, looks really good. Again, great performances. Uh, but it, it to kind of get an early glimpse of something that Tarkovsky would take through a lot of his films, or at least all the films I've seen so far, uh, that's definitely one to watch. Absolutely. I love The Seventh Seal so much. It is it's it's a top one for me for sure and and learning through the research for this podcast that uh bergman and tarkovsky were mutual admirers of each other was it was just it just felt nice it felt so warm and fuzzy i was like oh that's cute yeah um i i had read a quote somewhere and i'm not sure where i read it and it was either in reference to this film or it was to to stalker where basically tarkovsky said um, there are only two things. There is Brisson and there is Bergman. Um, so will Bergman, I am very familiar with, uh, Brisson, not so much. So we may definitely have to do a Brisson episode at one point, but, uh, it, it, again, watching both of these films and being much more familiar with Bergman's work, it's very readily apparent where a lot of the stylistic influences came from. And, and Tarkovsky just does a beautiful job taking those things and making it his own in these films. Yeah, that uh, that sounds like a good uh, place for us to wrap up for the for the night. So, thanks so much for doing with it, uh, this with me, Chris. I it's fun to get back into it and stretch some old muscles we haven't done in a bit. And uh, yeah, look forward to chatting with you next time. Yeah, and we will. Uh, so there will definitely be a next time. Uh, we've got a lot of themes that we've already kind of considered. So we'll start working through those, figure out which one we're going to do next. And we will probably work to make this a little bit tighter <laughs> and, and a little bit uh, of an easier format uh, moving forward. So for those of you listening, thanks for kind of bearing with us as we work out the kinks on what I'm really looking forward to as a fun adventure. Going.